GM friends, and welcome to the Metacast Crypto Corner, brought to you by Navic. I'm your host, Nico Vreke, and today I'm joined by Evan McMullen, who's the co-founder and CEO at Disco. Disco is building your identity backpack, backpack for the metaverse, and that's where we will be diving into today. We also have Carlos, who has re- recently been promoted to partner at Bitcraft. Uh, Par- Carlos Pereira, that is, still practicing. Congrats, man. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, Evan, well, welcome to the Metacast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here today. GM, everybody, thanks so much for, take, for taking time out of your day to talk about our future adventures in the metaverse. So I could tell you a lot about Evan, but the most important thing is that last week at the Bitcraft Summit, she started a presentation about Disco with GM. And so we are immediately friends because I like people who do that. It's important for Uh, us to think about, you know, not only how we greet each other, but how we show up for each other. And I think one really fun, you know, delightful thing about GM is that it is time agnostic. It is web agnostic. Um, We can use it IRL and web two and web three. And it's sort of a, it's a funny thing. um, But I think that the international um, use of this greeting and the fact that it is multi-platform is just another way that we show our human coordination, regardless of where you're coming from or where you're showing up. Couldn't agree more. All right. So before we dive into what Disco is building, um, maybe some intros are, are, are good to set the stage. Evan, you, you want to go first and, and tell us a bit more about you? Absolutely. Um, so I'm Evan McMullen, co-founder and CEO at the Disco. Um, I first fell in love with Web3 and uh, decentralized networks over a decade ago, um, but more recently have um, come up in um, the Ethereum ecosystem and now consider myself to be web and chain agnostic. Um, so at Disco, we are, as you said, building your identity and your data backpacks for the metaverse so that you can own and control private data written about you and um, you know proceed through your adventures from app to app across chains in a manner that optimizes for your consent and control. Um, The reason we're called Disco is we believe that you are the multifaceted center of the party just as you are, and you should reflect your data and your identity to the world however you decide. Um, You know, as we know, our Web3 wallets are for public financial data, and we think of your data backpack as um, the best place for you to logically centralize and physically decentralize private data written about you, just as you um, carry around all the things that are important for your day in your physical backpack. There is a lot to unpack there, so I look forward to doing that. Um, Carlos, how about you? Um, yeah, so um, I'm Carlos. I come from a background of um, traditional finance um, with growth and PE um, and began um, investing games back in 2018. I've always been a huge gamer. I still am a huge gamer. I had a one hour gap on my calendar before this and I was playing video games. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's always been a huge part of my life. Um, and, and I didn't know that you could work with it in an investment capacity. And then when I found out, I got the, the, the great fortune of, um, of, of starting my journey, um, spent about a couple of years, um, doing that, um, at Eldridge and then, um, spent a year at a portfolio company, um, and then finally joined Bitcraft last year. Um, I'd been, uh, following those guys and, uh, seeing them as the A team for a long time. And then after a three year long interview process, they, uh, they gave me a shot. Um, so I joined last year, um, I've done a number of deals on the equity side, um, sort of closer to my background. Um, but then last year uh, I fell in love with the, with the, the crypto side of things. One seeing new games being built on, on different infrastructure that I thought ultimately was better for the players. Right. And, and very much putting myself on a, on a 
players first mentality from, you know, from, from what I do right with my time. Um, and, uh, and then after, uh, after spending a lot of time going through that, I, I, you know, ultimately switched to spending most of my time on the crypto side, which is uh, what I do today, um, as part of our efforts. And absolutely killing it. So, um, let's dive in, Evan, you, you gave us the, the high level overview, which had a lot of technical terms in there and a lot of decentralized and, and stuff like that. Could you, you know, break it down for us? What problem are you solving? Um, for the user? So today, when we use applications, when we enter physical spaces, when we're um, running around on our adventures through our everyday lives, we are not the experts on ourselves. In fact, some random dude probably who made an app that you use sometimes has better data on you that you do. And what that means is that when we um, you know, go about our various different activities, we are leaving slices, shards of ourselves to be owned and controlled by these different applications. Um, every time we download a new app or we sign up for a new service, we're probably filling out a form, probably filling out a CAPTCHA, trying to find all of the crosswalks and some nine box of images. And what this means is that we are creating duplicate copies of the information about ourselves for the ownership and use of the service that we're interacting with. Um, so what this means is that every time we show up to a new app, it's like our first day on the internet. We have to begin again. Um, so this means that you know Americans spend 11 and a half billion hours a year filling out forms. This means that when we show up to a new application or environment, we're not able to carry with us the set of reputation and metadata that we've already created, already shared about ourselves. Um, and so the problem that we are solving for users is the friction that we experience when we interact with new services and when we move through the world. So the objective of Disco is to help you spend fewer fewer moments of your life onboarding so that you can get right to your adventure. Love that. Could you give me like a practical example? How should I think around this? What would this mean once Disco is widely impl implemented? Absolutely. So um, to uh, start with a pretty simple example, um, right now, when you go into a store to buy clothing, you are probably going to spend some amount of time trying to find the right size for you. Um, brands differ from you know, one to another. Uh, and you know, as we're running around and interacting as independent beings, discoverability becomes a huge problem. How do I find the right pairing for me? Whether that's the right pair of shoes, the right t-shirt, the right business for me to work at, the right DAO for me to join. Um, and so if you are able to define a very precise, what's called known universe of information about yourself, you're about, uh, able to provide good quality data about yourself the second that you encounter a new experience. Um, like if I can carry the size of my foot, 25 and a half centimeters into a store, um, that's store can then interact with that information and tell me, hey, Evan, you're about to be a size nine. Here are some shoes that you're really going to like based on your past purchases and taste profile. Um, and so being able to address the discoverability problem by allowing you to provide the very best information about yourself to any experience or service is um, a wonderful way to think about Disco. Now to um, you know, position that in a little bit more of a, maybe a financial term, um, if you are going to interact with a new bank, you wanna enjoy some banking services, you're gonna have to fill out a lot of forms as soon as you arrive. Um, know your customer forms, anti-money laundering forms, and those can take quite a long time, not only to complete, but also to be processed. So you could imagine that if you are enjoying banking services at one bank, you have completed all of those forms, you've been approved as a customer, that entity, 
might give you a proof of KYC AML completion that you can own and then take to another organization to show them, hey, I've passed muster, I've completed these forms, I've met these criteria. Um, and if the form of that proof, that KYC AML badge um, is signed by the keys of bank number one, Bank number two knows that it hasn't been tampered with, that it's been approved and issued by a trusted provider. Um, and so in this way, bank number two doesn't have to phone home to bank number one to verify that information. We can solve what's called the phone home problem so that a third party can rely on data that I bring to them about myself, knowing that it hasn't been tampered with and that I haven't intervened in its quality or content along the way. Fascinating. Um, it's almost like a, a passport, but better. That's right? a great way to think about it. So um, unlike a passport, uh, you do not need to ask for permission from a centralized authority. Um, rather, you can take custody of this information from a whole bunch of different issuers um, and then carry it with you and share it with whoever you would like. So actually, um, you could imagine that you could take a copy of your passport put it in your data backpack and bring it with you to share with apps, with other interactions, you know, whatever, uh, whatever requires the validation of your unique humanity and your citizenship. Um, so for example, if you had a signed copy of your digital passport in your data backpack, you could bring that to an app. The app would see that you have a passport, wouldn't even need to see the contents of it, but would know that you're not a bot because a bot cannot have a passport. So perhaps in that instance, you could avoid having to fill out a capsule when you onboard. But this brings me to um, anytime I have a discussion about gaming in Web3, where there's actually the potential for people to start earning money by playing and spending time. One of the key assumptions that we usually make is that we need a proof of humanity around the game to solve botting. Because you know once there is a literal financial reward for faking human time inside a game... Um, you get a lot of problems and you get hyperinflation and, 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 and bots. And I know a bunch of game developers that struggle with this. So, you know, if through Disco we can solve that, that's already a, a huge win in my book. That's definitely something that we think about a lot at Disco. Um, not necessarily uh, a singular um, uh, proof of humanity, but rather how we can allow you to aggregate data around yourself that in total serves as a high assurance anti-civil proxy. So for example, if I have uh, an identification credential from my employer, I have proof of my non-financial work in DAOs, such as I write the newsletter. Um, you know, if, if I've got uh, a proof that I spoke at the Bitcrat Summit the other day. Um, these are all actions that a bot cannot complete. And so the more data exhaust about myself that I'm able to collect in an independently verifiable way um, and kind of compose it together, stack it on top of each other, um, the higher assurances that an application can get that I am indeed not a bot. Because the cost of accruing all of these different credentials, all of these different badges and proofs of my activity, um, the cost of, of you know, getting rid of those or handing them over to someone else increases over time. So we can create an economic disincentive for bad actors um, while also using the data that we already have that we're already creating to prove our humanity. Um, additionally, because this can be a dynamic and ongoing process, there's no need for us to worry about a singular credential. Um, that might expire or whose relevancy might fall out. I've been thinking about that problem a lot. And this, this solution is so elegant and I've never thought of this. So um, 
I'm already very happy we're having this conversation. Um, before we dive, dive a bit deeper into the workings of Disco, I'd like to have um, Carlos's thoughts on digital identity. It's a, it's a core thesis at, uh, with us at Bitcraft. Um, and I'd like to have his, his thoughts on, on why he's, you know, he, he put so much importance on it. Um, yeah, I think, so first from a philosophical perspective, um, this problem has always been very interesting to me because as we imagine the migration of people from the physical world to the digital world, um, I sort of think about like, what is, what is the nature of my identity in digital worlds today? And, and, and a lot of it comes from games, right? And I have very different identities in very different games and people know me as different things. And then even in social networks, right? I have in a way there's, there exists a LinkedIn Carlos and there exists a Instagram Carlos and there exists a Twitter Carlos. Um, and so for us, it was always very natural to have to think about um, what does it mean to have digital identity and how should it be different from physical identity? Um, how should it reflect the fact that we are all these different people, but still um, um, unify it in a, in, you know, in, in one, in one place, right? Where we have one sort of like a macro identity that we can share in a certain, certain ways and then app specific micro identities and, and really the opportunity to, to address that problem as it became, or as it's set to become more and more prevalent as we spend more and more time digitally and we keep, you know, leaving shards behind of ourselves or, or, you know, as, as Evan said, or hopefully um, sort of distributing shards, but not leaving them behind um, to the extent that we can have more, um, more autonomy. Right. So from the philosophical perspective, like this was super interesting. And then from, from the practical one, I think it's relevant to consider um, that, you know, in gaming specifically, a lot of what we've seen in terms of the growth of, of how many people game, I mean, also on um, um, the types of games that have been developed uh, have been with the distribution, the shift in the meta of distribution that we saw through um, um, social gaming, right? So Farmville with Facebook and all that. Um, and the notion that we've been able to make more games that address people in a more unique way because we can target them in a certain way and then um, basically using targeting to drive better unit economics and also bringing different people to the games. And so a lot of the story of how gaming has grown over the past five to 10 years in, in apps in general um, relate to um, a shift in the meta of distribution. Um, and then we start seeing or imagining um, a Web3 network um, in distribution and specifically the, the, the issues around distribution become apparent very, very quickly in that, you know, since the changes in IDFA and targeting on the Apple side, we've seen mobile companies struggle to make their numbers because they have a harder and harder time um, um, targeting the user. The post-IDFA world is infinitely superior to the current blockchain world when it comes to our ability to target individuals, right? Like we have to be significantly better. But in, in responding to the challenge of being significantly better, um, there emerges an opportunity for a company like, um, like, like with the game of Farmville um, and in Zing overall and, and sort of those early players to figure it out better and faster and dominate the first innings of distribution of Web3 products, right? And so it's also a very interesting investment opportunity and that we can simultaneously address the tooling and the infrastructure that is needed to perform this successfully, but also hopefully position our portfolio companies to have cutting edge information and access to people developing such tools so that we can benefit not only the infra layer, but the app layer as well. Right. And so for us, and for me particularly, um, it's a combination of a very natural issue to me, which is like, I have all these identities digitally and I keep having more of them. And, you know, how can we address this and sort of in the more, fund investment sense, which is like, oh, it looks like a really good opportunity to take advantage of something we've seen play out before um, and make a lot of money and, and, you know, for a lot of people and entrepreneurs. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I was going to go into a philosophical debate on whether, you know, ATT and what Apple did is actually better for consumers. Um, but this leads into my next question where, you know, 
as a consumer, I might not want all of my information out there, right? And so, you know, Evan, you mentioned you have a backpack, you're walking around the metaverse. The problem right now is that everything that's on a blockchain is kind of public. And so could you talk me through, you know, what if I don't want everyone to know the fact that like the fact that I'm an accredited like, investor or something like that? Absolutely, Nico. I think that you raise a really great point that public ledgers with data in clear text are equal opportunity surveillance apparatuses. That data is going to be available to everyone on Earth and in space with an internet connection, basically until the heat death of the universe. And if we publicize our data to all of those folks, that means that we forfeit the ability to selectively disclose parts of ourselves in contexts where they're going to be most appropriate, they're going to serve us best. Um, as Carlos was noting earlier, uh, you know, he shares different parts of himself and different um, contexts, right? The information that's going to be relevant to his community on LinkedIn is different than the information that's going to be relevant to his community on World of Warcraft. Um, additionally, for marginalized communities, the ability to obscure the traits that are used to marginalize them um, is the root of being able to create a more equitable future. And so, um, you know, furthermore, I think it's a bit of an expensive overshare for us to put data that does not require global public availability and perpetuity um, in, you know, containers like NFTs that are transferable when that data doesn't need to be transferable. If information describes me, it's not going to be useful if you're holding it. Um, and so in order to optimize not only for the utility of the data that describes us, but to squarely position the user, the individual, the subject at the locus of control and consent over their information, it does not make sense for us to stash data about human beings on public blockchains and clear text. And furthermore, you know, as long as that single blockchain's API is not the only one upon which humanity relies, we're actually going to create a lot more complexity if we store data in a place that's not going to be accessible to all the applications and services that a user might want to bring it to. Um, so as we were noting, you know, you are not a bunch of broken shards. You are a disco ball. And so that's kind of how we think about the, you know, the ability to logically centralize data around an individual. Um, I am the same Evan who shows up to my Bitcoin address, my Ethereum address, my email address, my PGP key. Um, and right now, I don't have the ability to easily move information, reputation about myself from one of those contexts to another. The ability to leverage the reputation I've built up, for example, in the Ethereum ecosystem, when I present my DNS record, when I present my email address, even though I am the same person. It's just simply a different facet of myself that I'm rotating to the fore. Um, and so with Disco, we make it easy for you to bring your own keys that you're already using to interact on chain, that public-private key pair that allows you to have data known secretly only to you, as well as data that you can put on blast to the whole universe. And Disco makes it easy for you to explore the spectrum of data privacy and publicity that exists between those two extremes. So from a technical perspective, what does this mean? Um, we are operationalizing two really powerful primitives brought to us by the World Wide Web Consortium, the W3C. These are the good folks who run the internet, um, who you know brought us other identifiers such as URLs. Um, so the most recent identifier that they have elevated to the status of things like URLs um, are called decentralized identifiers or DIDs. 
So a DID method is a way to retrofit an existing public address that you already have so that it can have another set of signing keys that are able to pass private messages. Um, so you can take uh, your garden variety Ethereum address, Bitcoin address, Tron address, email address, PGP key, and generate keys that are able to issue, request, disclose, revoke, and manage private messages sent to any other one of those identifiers. So for example, my Ethereum address, Nico's Bitcoin address, and Carlos's email address now can be in a group chat without the need for publicizing the data that we're passing between each other, um, without the need to pay gas fees or worry about network latency because we can pass that information via API. Um, so the messages that we can send to one another now that we can own and control about ourselves, that we can write about ourselves are called verifiable credentials or VCs. Um, not to confuse that with venture capital, which is the reason that we're here today. So, of course, as with all technical things in the Web3 ecosystem, we've got to work on making that nomenclature a little bit more familiar. But anyway, verifiable credentials are the second really exciting companion primitive to decentralized identifiers. These are um, VCs are are the types of messages that are that are created, signed, managed by your decentralized identifier. So, verifiable credentials. I like to think of them almost like an off-chain NFT. So NFTs, as we know, are on-chain, public, immutable, and largely transferable. Verifiable credentials are off-chain by default. They're just a signed attestation or statement written by one party about itself or about another in the form of a JSON blob. Um, they are encrypted, tamper evident. So they have a tamper evident seal, almost like, you know, a bottle of juice or a bottle of water where if it's been opened, you can tell. Um, and so the cryptography will not resolve if the data has been tampered with in any way after it was initially created. Um, they can be revoked or set to expire. And so in this way, they are a much more appropriate capture of data that describes us as human beings. Um, our identity, our expression of self is not public and permanent and fixed. Rather, you know, the core of individualism is our ability to change and evolve, to take on new traits, um, you know, as we learn new things or we get new responsibilities or capabilities and to jettison and send away that which is no longer relevant, that which which no longer serves us. Um, and so verifiable credentials offer us a really flexible form of metadata about ourselves that can add and take away as we change as human beings. Um, verifiable credentials are also globally resolvable, meaning that they can be interpreted by anybody with an internet connection who comes across their way. You don't have to download a special app. You can just drop that JWT token into any old JWT resolver that you might find on Google, and you'll be able to expand it and validate its contents. Um, because these attestations are signed by the party who set them, uh, it means that we can always go back to um, identifying who made that attestation about you. Um, so we never have a free floating piece of data without an author whose provenance cannot be understood. Um, like a diploma, once a credential is written about you, it's always going to be written about you. So it is inherently non-transferable. Um, the contents will always describe you, always tie back to the address that is the subject um, that is you know, written about you. Um, so verifiable credentials are also composable, um, meaning that they can be stacked together in a verifiable presentation. This is kind of like you know, collecting all the infinity stones or collecting all the dragon balls before it will validate. So it allows us to bring together 
multiple qualifications um, to allow a user to secure access to whatever gated experiences they're looking for. Um, as I mentioned earlier, they're globally resolvable, which means that uh, my Bitcoin address can write a credential about your Ethereum address and can send it to Carlos's email address. And there's no need for us to, you know, leverage a complex bridge or, um, you know, wait for uh, wait for block timing or anything like that. Um, and so it gives us just a, a much more, I guess, comprehensive way to capture the data exhaust um, that we generate as human beings um, to describe what we've been up to throughout the metaverse. Um, one last thing that I'll note about verifiable credentials also is that because they are a pretty, you know, simple form, they're just a file, right, JSON blob, kind of like a PDF, you can store them wherever you would like. Um, so at Disco, we make it easy for you to encrypt these credentials against your own keys and store them in a decentralized storage network that is censorship resistant. Um, however, we also think that data portability is the key to your autonomy. So if you want to move your credentials, move your data backpack um, to a different storage solution that's going to be better for your needs, that's totally cool. And we want to make sure that you do not have platform lock-in when you're managing the data that describes you. So you could store your credentials in your hardware enclave. You could even print them out on pieces of paper and carry them around with you if that's your vibe. Um, the, the sort of ultimate expression here of verifiable credentials is your ability to use your data to remove the friction of onboarding and accessing the experiences that you want to do anyway. So if you have a verifiable credential, um, you can use it to access um, experiences in your community, such as Telegram or Discord channels, um, Google Drive and collaboration tools. You can use that same singular credential to access gated visual content, perhaps even things like this podcast or a video, ticketing, e-commerce uh, discounts, et cetera. Um, so the universe of Web2 can be gated and unlocked with a verifiable credential. Additionally, you can use verifiable credentials to gate access to physical spaces. So for example, if Bitcraft was having an event and they only wanted um, folks who had a Bitcraft credential to enter, um, people would be able to queue outside the venue, present their credential via QR code, and then they would be able to ensure that only the desired guests were going to enter that physical space. Um, and then lastly, verifiable credentials can also be used to gate access to smart contracts on chain. So for example, if um, there was a permissioned DeFi pool where you needed to to um, provide a KYC credential before being able to deposit or needed to prove that you were a member of a DAO before being able to interact, you'd be able to do so. Um, you could even gate access to minting certain NFTs based on credentials. Um, and so uh, as you can see, verifiable credentials are an extremely powerful and flexible, but pretty simple structure that can allow us to control access in Web2, Web3, and physical spaces using the keys that we already use to manage our activities on chain. That was a lot. Um, if I'm gonna, <laughs> so I'm gonna try and summarize this, right? So all of your data is essentially encrypted in these JSON blobs in a programmatic way, which means that you can do some really cool shit with it, right? You can make it expire in a week. You can make it so that you know I can make it so that only I allow only Carlos to look at um, certain you know certain uh, data uh, things that I've or things that I've stored, um, and and much more than that. It sounds to me like um, you know there are some other so, or some other solutions kind of solving the same thing. I guess one of the key differences is that here it doesn't necessarily live on chain. I guess it could, um, but you could also keep it off chain and 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 through what you've built, you can then verify that all of that what lives on on chain is still true. Is that fair to des to describe it? 
Absolutely. And I think one of the core values of individual identity in Web3 is our, our freedom to choose how we express ourselves. Right now, when we interact with public blockchains, we are only able to express ourselves with public financial data that's immutable. And I think that your money is the least interesting thing about you. And so with verifiable credentials, um, we are able to allow people to capture the data that describes them and to decide where it lives, how public it is, who gets to see it, where it gets used. Um, and that agency is something that we've already become comfortable with when it comes to our financial assets, but we haven't yet explored when it comes to the rest of our lives. When I hear this and what you describe um, as a VC investor, some questions come to mind, which I now I'm going to ask to Carlos because he has answers to these. It seems like me that what you've done is you've made a, a technical choice um, or like a choice in which like the way you're going to solve your problem. And it seems to me also that um, looking at the blockchain, there's many network effects around some tech decisions that have been made. And I mean, you don't even have to look at the blockchain. If you look at the internet as a whole, a lot of that is just some suboptimal systems that where we have found consensus around. And so, Carlos, how did you decide that the solution that Disco was building was was the way to go to solve, you know, the, the problems and, and the opportunities around uh, digital identity? Um, so when we first had our call with Evan, um, we had begun, um, we were already pretty deep in, in terms of thinking about decentralized um, identity. We had invested in Spruce, spent a lot of time being educated by Wayne and Rocco um, around what they're doing. Um, and, and it was the emergence of um, the dialogue around soulbound tokens, SBTs. Um, I think Vitalik had published something. Um, a couple of friends were working on something. I mean, the guilds um, and other apps were starting to think about um, validating their scholars and, 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 and using soulbound tokens to do so. Um, and so when we spoke to Evan, um, naturally, my first question was, um, Vitalik says you're wrong. You know, what about that? And, um, and Evan went on like a five minute thing about actually Vitalik is wrong. And, and it was passionate as always. Um, and I loved, I, I just love the boldness. Right. And so, um, I texted a colleague, you know, Malta who was on the call on the side and I was like, I, I don't know if she's crazy good or just crazy, but I, I I'm, I'm digging <laughs> it. Um, and then we texted Seb, um, who has known Evan for a very long time and was a venture partner here. And I was like, Seb, like, what's the deal here? And he was like, yeah, crazy, good, crazy, but also crazy good. And I was like, I love it. I love it. Um, and so it came, it came, um, ultimately from, um, from the perspective of two things, like one is the, like loving the entrepreneur and loving the energy and backing people. Um, even if she came to the pitch with something that was very, very different than what I was willing to consider up to this point. Um, but then on the more pragmatic side, um, I think you have to know when to switch. Maybe, I don't know, right? There's still um, um, a lot of history to be written to see if our decisions are right or wrong on the investment side. But I think you have to know when to switch from idealism to pragmatism. Um, and I love the idealism of having everything on chain. I love reading about like um, Dark Forest and how they have that whole game on chain and they're using ZKs to hide the, you know, to create the fog of war. And, and, I, and I love the idealism of that. Um, but you also want to invest in, in building the future that you want to see now. Um, and building the future that you want to see now required some compromises around what should be on chain and what should be off chain. 
um, that I thought Evan could very clearly lay out a vision for how we could preserve what's exciting about crypto, which is cryptography, right? Like what is the cryptography of what's going on here and how can we use our wallets um, as the, the, the ultimate sort of I don't know, source of where identity emanates from to then just sign these attestations and, and, and build this macro and micro identity in a way that was cryptography, but not necessarily on chain. Um, and, and feeling that that was the right balance of pragmatism to, again, to build the future that you want to build now, instead of sitting here and, and sort of waiting until ZKs can deliver everything um, that we that we need to do to be developing apps and distributing apps and targeting users and talking to people about this stuff today. Mm-hmm. Evan, do you want to add anything on that question? Well, I, you know, one of the really exciting things for me is the opportunity to work with amazing partners like Bitcraft, who are willing to take a step back from our on-chain enthusiasm and think, as Carlos said, practically about what it means to welcome the next million billion users to the table. So at Disco, we are really excited about being able to use the powers of our public-private key pairs without first having to fund our wallets. You are still able to sign data and to pass it in you know, a variety of different interactions without having to first go through a KYC process or onboard fiat currency or you know, land financial assets in your wallet. Um, and so if we think about the range of our human existence, our human expression, most of what we do every day does not start with a financial transaction. Um, and so considering the broader ecosystem of what it means for us to build a reputation, to be a good agent in the games that we play, to be accountable to the communities where we live, all of that information can bolster our interactions on chain in a way that exceeds what we're able to do right now with tokens alone. Um, and I also, you know, I also want to note, like, I, I love technical conjectures that are spicy. I think that revisiting the concept of non-transferable NFTs, which was largely debunked um, by the privacy and technology community 2015-2016, um, is a really wonderful opportunity for us to discuss what we really want to build here in Web3 as a decentralized ecosystem. Um, I think that it's also an opportunity for us to think about how we serve more users than just the folks, you know, who are already here today. There are 500,000 daily active wallets on the Ethereum or that interact with the Ethereum protocol. And that is a rounding error when we think about, you know, the number of individuals who log into Twitter every day. And so if we want to create a decentralized ecosystem that is welcoming to communities who do not benefit from having all of their traits publicized on chain, um, you know, this includes communities like the LGBTQ plus community. This includes women. This includes minorities. And if we are blasting all of their information on chain, associating their gender, their ethnicity, their socioeconomic status with their public identifiers, we would be remiss to assume that the discrimination that happens in the physical world where we live is not going to be transposed onto these much more permanent, much more public networks. And so as we consider the fact that Ethereum is people all the way down, this is true of every blockchain, and you know our whole experience of Web3 happens between the keyboard and the chair, we need to meet people where they are today. We need to create experiences that take into account, um, you know, how to remove friction from their lives and how to add value. And um, that means that we need greater flexibility. We need greater focus on the human experience. Um, you know, we are building human coordination tools after all. Uh, and so it's been really fun to have amazing thought partners like the folks at Bitcraft um, to help us think about these, you know, these thorny issues um, and to really continuously refocus on the human experience.
Got it. So if, I'm going to try to summarize this again, because um, I think that, that might be helpful and is a good test for if I understand this. But you want to build a backpack of who you are, essentially. And key of that is being able to not have all of that public, right? Being able to obfuscate some of who you are and share it with whoever you want. And so, you know, there are currently technologies that could potentially make that possible on a public blockchain, um, which would still be costly, right? Because it still has to store there. And so what you're doing is you're saying, okay, why don't we take that data off chain? And then, and so this is a solution that works right now. The technologies exist. And so that means that you can start onboarding the, the first million up to billion people um, to, to Disco and, and get them this backpack. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one really fun thing for us to consider as well is that we think of off-chain data, verifiable data that is owned and controlled by its subject as the key to fun in the metaverse. You and I can't have a lot of fun together if the only thing I know about you is how much money you have, right? The only thing that we can coordinate together is a shared bank account with a centralized group chat, which means we can do treasury allocation, um, but we can't coordinate around more interesting things. Um, you know, we can't throw a party together. We can't build a product together in a trust minimized way. I need to know what are you good at? Who trusts me? What are, you know, where are the places that you hang out? What kind of music do I like? And then with those different kinds of data, um, we are able to coordinate so many more things in a trust minimized manner. Uh, right now, you know, when we show up to a new DAO, let's say, because we're not a, not able to bring our reputation data from other contexts, um, the only thing that you can see about us is our on-chain expression and our centralized public expression. And that means that we basically have to start from square one, reintroducing ourselves every time we join a new community, every time we join a new platform. And that is not the efficiency and fluidity that we're promised in Web3. What does this look like? very practically for a user? Let's say, okay, I'm convinced, right? I want to start building my backpack and I want to start using it. How does this work? How, how, how should I think around this? So we've actually already started onboarding um, a handful of DAOs to enjoy this experience already. Um, so what folks are able to do who are in our private beta program is visit the Disco web app where they bring their own keys using whatever Ethereum compatible wallet they're already using on chain. Um, then they connect to the Disco web app as they would normally any Web3 dApp. On the back end, we create a decentralized identifier for them, retrofitting the keys that they brought to the table. Um, and this is the basis of their data backpack. So they're then able to create bi-directional, independently verifiable linkages between their data backpack and their Twitter handle, their Discord handle, their DNS record. Um, these linkages are themselves encapsulated as verifiable credentials. So what does this mean? Um, they are these linkages between your backpack and your Twitter handle um, are like a handshake. So your Twitter handle consents to being linked to your backpack, your backpack consents to being linked to your Twitter handle. So in this way, um, it's a much higher assurance proof than something like an ENS text record, which is self-attested in clear text on chain one way. So, you know, I could fill out on my ENS profile that my Twitter handle is at Paris Hilton and no one could stop me. Um, additionally, because these verifiable credentials are owned and controlled by the user, um, they can be taken to a broad variety of different contexts, even out of Disco, if Disco no longer serves them. Um, and so this preserves the data portability and user centricity that we hold really dear. Um, so once you've got uh, some data in your data backpack, you're going to be ready to issue credentials to others, to receive them, um, and to create some about yourself. 
So for example, um, one of the types of credentials that we have um, to help folks get comfortable with this new UX flow is a GM credential. Similar to a Facebook poke back in the day, it's a friendly greeting that you can send to someone else. Um, but what that feels like is um, when you receive a GM, you're taking custody with your keys of a rectangular JPEG written by you, written about you by someone else that can then be used to access, um, you know, all kinds of experiences that currently at Disco we are building out so that you can bring a credential to an application and get past the access control gate and get on with your adventure in the metaverse. Um, and so uh, the look and feel of managing your credentials is somewhere in between um, NFTs and your Apple wallet. Um, but because these credentials can be used in a broad variety of contexts, um, we think that it opens up the world of possibilities far beyond the chain for you. How does this work from the, the developer side? And I guess my more important question is, um, it sounds to me like you have a sort of two-sided like platform where you need both users and users and the developers of the application that use the credentials to be on board. Um, famously, these platforms have a sort of cold star problem where, you know, you need a lot of users to incentivize or to make it worth it for the developers to actually, you know, implement your solution. And then the other way around, you need a lot of, you know, solutions and applications that use it to incentivize your users to actually, you know, start getting these backpacks. Um, so I guess, you know, what's in it for the devs? How does it work for them? And how are you thinking about the, the cold star problem? So actually, let's make this a little bit more complex. I would call this a three-sided cold star problem, but okay. um, absolutely, absolutely agree with your characterization here. So um, in the context of verifiable credentials, we often think about the issuers of those credentials. So applications, services, and individuals who are writing credentials about others. We think about the holders of those credentials, so the folks who are taking custody of data written about them into their data backpacks. And then we think about the verifiers, the third-party applications um, who haven't spoken to those issuers, um, where holders of data are going to visit their front door and showing up with independently verifiable data to define the known universe that can be used to personalize their experiences in those third-party apps. Um, so the wonderful thing for us in Web3 is that we are reaching a ceiling of fun and utility that we can coordinate around public financial assets. Um, so for example, in DAOs, folks are frustrated that they cannot capture proofs of their non-financial work and that the switching costs of going from one community to another are extremely high. Holders, individual users are frustrated because they spend so much time onboarding and filling out forms. And Web3 applications are also pretty frustrated because if they want to create and interact with user data that's not on chain, they have to behave like a Web2 app, vacuuming up data about their users. But the problem is that their backend is a slower, more expensive database than you know, a Web2 application. Um, and so due to the incredible friction for developers on the issuance side, on the verification side, and the end user friction that individuals are experiencing, we see an opportunity to remove some of that frustration, to ease the path of moving from one application to another, um, and to add some delight and value along the way. Yes, love it. And um, well, three sides, it's, it makes it exponentially harder, but um, yeah, makes a ton of sense to me. As a investor, but also as a user, um, I'm always curious when I hear this, um, cause it does, it's not self-evident to me how you make money. And even, even as a, as a user, I want to understand that because if I don't know how you make money, you're probably making money of me. So, um, you know, how does that work? 
So we see a number of opportunities for monetization in this new paradigm. Um, Disco has an SDK that makes it easy for applications to issue credentials about their users um, in a manner that doesn't require them to go, undergo all of the complexity of building up this infrastructure. So we think the simplicity of being able to issue verifiable credentials in a W3C compliant form that's going to be interoperable is an opportunity to monetize with a tiered rate limited op um, option. However, we think it's really important that we always have a free tier for our builders and DGENs. Um, so that's on the issuer side. On the verifier side, we have an API that it makes it easy to display and validate credentials, um, as well as, you know, we're excited about working on those verifiable presentations that we talked about earlier, the ability to um, request that a user bring a collection of different credentials together from a variety of categories, signers, issuers, in order to validate those as a whole. Um, so our API similarly, I think, has a great opportunity for a tiered rate limited pricing structure with a free tier always for our DGENs. Um, and then additionally, once a user takes custody of a credential, um, we will welcome them into the Disco marketplace. So a set of decentralized and centralized applications where their experiences will be different as a function of having and carrying with, um, with them the credentials that they've collected. So this helps to solve the discoverability problem of applications in Web3. Um, as we know, the App Store, the Apple App Store has this funny rule where you can't have an app in the App Store that has its own App Store inside of it. Um, this is why MetaMask got booted out of the app store a while ago for a little a little while. And so it's made it really challenging for Web3 users to find applications that they know and trust and to discover new ones that might be relevant to their interests. Um, and so by having a, mar a familiar marketplace type experience, there's a lot of uh, real estate there for us to explore potential monetization. Um, furthermore, we also think that there's an opportunity to monetize the higher order UX and cryptography that we can bring to the table for end users whether that's dividing your um, credentials and data up into different personas. Um, so this is, you know, my professional data. This is my data related to fantasy football. This is my data related to my fashion, whatever those categories might be, allowing users to have presets for how they like to share that data uh, to anticipate the types of interactions that they're going to have with future apps so that they can exercise maximum consent. Um, we also, as I mentioned, um, are really excited about exploring some of the higher order cryptography capabilities. Um, so professors like Larry Lessig at Harvard since 1997 have been telling us stories about, you know, the potential in the future to go to a bar and in, in the United States. And instead of having to present your ID and show the bouncer where you live or how tall you are, instead that party being able to validate that you um, have the right qualifications to enter the establishment and then just proceed without leaking all that additional data. And that's the kind of thing we'll be able to achieve with technologies like predicate disclosures that will allow me to present some data in an encrypted form and allow someone else to compute upon that data to learn about it without seeing all of it. Um, so that allows us to change the question from what is your data to does your data fit my requirements? And we think the preservation of privacy and autonomy in that way also offers us a really interesting area to explore monetization. You mentioned the metaverse. I see the metaverse as the next iteration of the internet. And so the most, most of the examples that you mentioned are, you know, things that you would normally do in a, you know, on a website. Have you, like, how are you thinking around what disco could mean for games? So um, actually, I want to first uh, revisit our definition of the metaverse. Um, so I grew up watching the Jetsons and, you know, seeing the automated universe that existed around them. Um, so my definition of the metaverse is your ability to show up in any digital or physical environment 
and receive a personalized experience as a result of the parts of yourself that you choose to share. Uh, I think we're limiting ourselves if we consider the metaverse to only be hanging out inside of someone else's website with an iPad strapped to your face. Um, and so when I think about gaming and the metaverse, there are so many actions that we do outside of games that might be relevant to how we show up in those games, whether it's my accountability in communities, the fact that I am a, um, a good guy, I am a rule adhering um, non-bully in one game might be an indicator that I'm going to be a good citizen of a different metaverse or game environment. Um, if I have certain preferences, whether those are for music, for snacks, for brands, for colors, um, I can bring those preferences with me from one environment to another, one metaverse game to another, um, and show up and be able to have a much larger known universe about myself um, and skip through some of the onboarding required. Um, however, of course, all of this requires that we have a shared standard of how we communicate information about ourselves, whether that's the capture of, you know, the gate of our walk, um, whether that's the capture of, um, you know, like I said, the music that we listen to, the characters that we like to play, um, the, you know, robustness of our human expression just gives us a much larger surface area to play with when we come explicitly to gaming environments. Um, also, I think, you know, discoverability, as we noted, continues to be a challenge in many spaces. And so if I know that a bunch of my friends are playing a specific game or other people who have similar affinities to mine, similar personalities to mine, really dig a specific game, it would be really awesome for that to be served up to me in a manner that not only preserves my privacy, but optimizes for the amount of fun that I can have. Yeah. Makes total sense. And I actually really like your definition of the metaverse. Haven't heard that one, but it just makes a ton of sense. Um, Carlos, one last question I'd like to ask you is, you know, you've done a lot of work around digital identity. You identified the opportunity of Disco um, and some other projects that we've worked with. Where, where are you seeing holes at the moment? Uh, opportunities that not enough people are, are working on and, and, you know, that, some, that, that you've, you find um, should, be, should be worked on? I think the opportunity is obvious enough that that there's a lot of people working on the different aspects of, of um, identity um, targeting user, um, the user experience around, you know, identity and, and using um, keys for token gated things and um, experiences. Um, so for me, it's, it's not so much of like looking at one particular place and, um, and um, not seeing anything being built there, um, but rather having a North star around um I don't know what tells me that we've made enough progress. And I was joking with someone the other day, um, but it's, it's actually a joke with a, a fair bit of truth behind it, which is, you know, I'll start thinking about moving on from, from this as an investment thesis, when on the app side, we can go to a game and say, please describe to me your CAC and LTV um, for your crypto game distributed by your different user acquisition channels. Right. When someone can finally tell us what exactly their CAC is and how they think about lifetime value for the consumers across the different channels of acquisition that are endemic and native to Web3, that will probably tell that we've made sufficient progress on decentralized identity that we should move on to something else in investment thesis. Right. So like that's the North Star. Um, and we'll, you know, we're investing now in tools that are specifically targeting cohort analysis for wallets and we're investing in things that are more on the infrastructure side, even one layer below disk goes on, on, you know, storing the data. Um, and then we have, you know, the layer above, which is, the, you know, the disco with like, you know, thinking about identity and, and, and issuing the credentials. And then it's like the next layer is using those credentials to target users in particular ways. And so um, for us, it's about um, um, investing in the ecosystem around it with the notion of like, what's the ultimate goal, which is, 
how do we distribute products in a profitable way um, that is comparable or hopefully better to or, or better than um, Web2 um, and also good for the consumer and, and reflect this, this paradigm shift in um, taking control of your identity that we see the potential for in crypto, right? So it's like, how can we do what we have now in a more consumer-friendly way um, while not sacrificing performance of user acquisition? Evan, you know, um, what you're building, I think, is inspiring. It is, I don't think it's common knowledge enough that there's another opportunity out there around, you know, a solution for digital identity. Um, if people are inspired by, you know, what you're building and want to learn more or just want to talk to you because your enthusiasm is uh, infectious, um, where, where they can they find you? Well, we absolutely welcome um, all those who are excited by this potential future to come join us at disco.xyz. Um, there's a section at the bottom of the website where you can share with us your metaverse dreams. And so I want to hear about the future that you all are excited to build so that we can make sure we take those ideas into account as we proceed forward. Uh, you can also always find me on Twitter at Proven Authority. Send me a DM. My DMs are always open. Would love to chat with you. Um, you can also hit up the Disco team on Twitter at DiscoXYZ. Fantastic. And Carlos, if I'm a, a Web3 game developer and I can I can tell you what my CAC LTVs are, uh, where can I find you? You can find me at a, at a Carlos at Bitcraft.vc or any of the uh, other great people on the team. Um, reach out to any one of us. First name at Bitcraft.vc. It's easy. Um, so, uh, Carlos, yeah. no, don't do it. <laughs> Sorry. No, I'm kidding. No, 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 all of that is public. So um, good. Fantastic. This was, this was uh, an I- absolute pleasure. Can I Go squeeze ahead. in one last question for Evan? Go ahead. So I was hoping to ask you this at the summit. You are the only portfolio founder that we have that comes from Berkshire Hathaway. Highly atypical background in gaming. What did you learn from uh, the Oracle of Omaha that you bring to your uh, Web3 experience? So... One of, the, one of the most important lessons that I learned spending a lot of time in Omaha is discipline of singular focus. And that was, you know, something that I learned in, uh, in, you know, what some people might describe as kind of a boring context. It was largely focused on insurance and reinsurance. Um, but having a clear vision of what you're trying to accomplish and um, ruthless discipline around that focus is something that I observed in many of my colleagues. Um, and that I think in Web3, with so many shiny objects and so many adrenaline and dopamine, uh, you know, anchored experiences um, with, you know, ups and downs and tokens and ICOs and NFTs, um, remaining true to a singular thesis and doggedly pursuing that day and night from the protocol to the party um, is something that I really try to carry with me. Uh, when I was at Berkshire, I realized that, you know, most of the most delightful part of my day was talking about Web3 and convincing my colleagues to download Coinbase at the water cooler. And so, um, you know, even though I discovered my sort of singular focus um, and, and really kind of came, came to terms with dedicating myself to it in that space, I definitely carry with me the discipline that I learned from the folks there. Thank you, Carlos, for that question. That is uh, a live lesson at the end of this episode. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, fantastic. So, um, Evan, Carlos, this was it. Um, loved having you on, um, and loved learning more about Disco and what you're building. And I really hope that, you know, you'll be able to, uh, to get enough, what is it, validators and issuers on? No, not validators. Or is it validators? Verifiers. Yep. It is. Validators, oh, verifiers. Verifiers, that was it. Oh. Anyway, so there's, there's a lot to digest here, but, uh, this was fascinating. Thank you so much. Um, Thank listener. Thank you very much, Evan. 
Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys Um, for having me. I was sorry. Thank you guys for having me. It has been an absolute pleasure and I will see you in the metaverse. There we go. That's that's the sentence on, on, on which we end. But actually, I have one more final note. Um, as as you guys or the people listening might know, that I'll I'll be um, transitioning away from the MetaCast. Um, we have a bunch of interested interested people to take over as a host. Uh, but if you are too, feel free to reach out and uh, happy to to chat and, and see if there's a fit. And then with that, we're out. Uh, this was a very interesting episode. And um, instead of seeing you next week, I'll see you in the metaverse. Yeah.